Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today, I welcome my mom, Dr. Rebecca Levy-Gant, to the Five Timers Club on Sex Ed with DB. That's right. She's been a guest every single season for five seasons, and we love her for it. My mom is an obstetrician and gynecologist who grew up in Brooklyn, New York, then moved to Northern California. She owns her own solo OBGYN practice in Napa and is devoted to her patients and to providing comprehensive reproductive health care to women of all ages. She has recently published an amazing book, Womb with a View, which is her first attempt at providing a true look into the life of an OBGYN in training and in practice. Buy her book on Amazon or Kindle and go to premierobgynnapa.com to learn more. Here I am with my mom. Want to get your birth control with free delivery? Well, now you can with Pandia Health. Pandia Health makes our lives easier by bringing you birth control wherever you have internet and a mailbox. If you have a prescription, you can move it to their pharmacy and get your birth control delivered. If you don't have one, you can have their expert birth control doctors write you one. Find out more at pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A health.com and use code SEXEDFREE to get a free telemedicine appointment for the first 50 people who sign up. Follow them on Instagram, at Pandia Health. Offer only valid in Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, and Wyoming. I bet you baked all the bread and binged all the TV shows during quarantine. But have you created an exact copy of your genitals? Yeah, I didn't think so. Meet Clona Willy. Clona Willy and Clona Pussy are DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of a penis or vulva at home into a high quality sex toy or memento. Check them out at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. How many different ways do you think I can say the word lube in 30 seconds? Let's give it a shot. Lube. Lube. Luby, luby, luby. Lube. Lurb. L. To the U, to the B, to the E. Lube. Well, that was lubes. I mean, loads of fun. This phenomenal and very necessary lube break was brought to you by Uber Lube. Use promo code SEXEDDB for 10% off your purchase with free shipping at www.uberlube.com. Hello, Mom. Hi. Oh my gosh, your fifth time on the podcast. How do you feel? Old. What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, not old, but Five Timers Club. That's like a thing on SNL. You get a jacket. I won't send you a jacket, but if you want to buy a jacket for yourself that says <laughs> Sex Out with DB Five Timers Club, I would support that. I will look for a place to find that. <laughs> no, you won't, you silly goose. Okay, for those of you listening who don't know my mom, this is my mom, and she's the absolute best, but I will let her introduce herself. So, mom, 
tell us your name, tell us your pronouns. And for those who haven't heard you on the podcast before, they're lost. Highly recommend going back and listening, but tell everyone what you do. Okay. Hi, my name is Dr. Rebecca Levy-Gant and my pronouns are she and her. And as for what I do, my most important job, of course, is I'm your mom. Mm -hmm. Uh, But basically for about the last 23 or 24 years, I've been an obstetrician and gynecologist. Um, Part of that time I was in New York and the last 11 years, 12 years or so, I've been out in California, and um, the last six years or so, I have owned my own private practice here in Napa, California, where I take care of all ages of women, focused a little bit on menopause, but I also do still deliver babies and take care of pregnant women. Oh, just so accomplished, and I also love that every single time I ask you to tell me and everyone what you do you just say well first and foremost and most importantly i'm your mom like oh my god get out of town so sweet well people ask a lot you know what what defines you and you know for for my entire life my entire adult life i can say it's really been these two not competing but kind of compatible um jobs that i've had and one has been being mother to all of my kids and one has been taking care of women and one can't really say it trumps the other but they've been very enmeshed in my life for a very long time yeah and how fitting for you to talk about that because today we're talking about pregnancy and specifically mental health um and even more specifically with a covid lens. Um, But before we even get into the COVID stuff, let's just talk about pregnancy and mental health in general. So I want to know, and by the way, this is like our first pregnancy episode in like over whatever, 50 or 60 episodes. So I'm really, really glad that we're talking about this because you're, as you said, an expert in OBGYN and in menopause. And, but the first like love of your career was like, pregnant people and deliveries and that was like the major part of your life for such a long time and still is so I want to know how can pregnancy impact a person's mental health and kind of like both positively and negatively wow that is a huge question um and since we're not at the moment introducing the whole COVID thing into this, let's just talk in more generalizations. Mm -hmm. So I would say for most of the time I've been doing obstetrics, the, the biggest impact pregnancy will usually have on someone. And I have to say, when you talk about pregnancy's impact, I think the biggest impact is on women or um, people who are having their first baby, because going from a couple or a single person to then having a baby is a much bigger thing than going from having one child to two or two to three Mm -hmm. because um, the impact of of that first baby is is probably the biggest one that you're going to have, just in general, speaking of generalizations. So I would have said all the way up to maybe last year sometime that there's a huge positive impact of pregnancy on most people that I take care of. Because even though, as you well know, 
many pregnancies in this country, almost half, are kind of unplanned, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really mean that most of them are undesired or that people are unhappy about it. So especially for people who have been envisioning a pregnancy, have been trying to get pregnant, have been a little bit making it their life's work to go to the next stage of their life and become pregnant and become a parent, um, the initial impact, besides that people feel a little afraid of it, the initial impact is usually a good one. People are happy, they're excited, they're anticipating. So in general, separating, you know, all the fears and all the the COVID and and what's happening in the country and all that, if you can isolate how most people feel when they achieve a pregnancy, it usually has a positive impact on their mental health. So um, going through those nine months of pregnancy, takes people through so many different stages where, yes, anxiety and yes, fear and yes, um, worry is all kind of part of that. But for the most part in the past, it has impacted people in a positive way and brought them up to be planning for the future. And now when you want to look at how can it possibly negative effect, negatively affect them, Um, certainly people who come into their pregnancy unsure as to whether they wanted to have this pregnancy or unsure about their relationship or entering a pregnancy with already established mental health issues that may or may not have been um, treated or diagnosed or, or addressed, that kind of leads to um, over the next nine months of impact of more worry, more anxiety, more of the mental health issues that people may not be able to deal with because they're realizing that this pregnancy, this labor, this delivery, and their postpartum period where now they have this full-time baby to take care of, that they may not be ready for that in many capacities. So on on some people, uh, it absolutely has the negative impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I th- I think, yeah, obviously that question is so complex. And I really appreciated what you said about the fact that even if, you know, 50% roughly of pregnancies in the US are unplanned, that doesn't mean they're undesired. It doesn't mean there isn't excitement with some of those pregnancies. Um, so I think that's a really important thing, just because I think that as you know, you and I are public health professionals, there's so much emphasis on like diminishing and like deleting unplanned pregnancies. And it's like, yeah, sure. For like people who really don't want them, but like there are happy surprises, you know? And Right. And sometimes some of the impact of why people would have more anxiety about a pregnancy is the guilt of feeling that they maybe were not completely certain that this is what they wanted in the first place. Mm -hmm. So they have to kind of deal with their, um, their uncertainty as to whether this was the thing for them. And I, and as I take care of people in their first trimester or as they come into me to diagnose a pregnancy or to, to establish a pregnancy, I have to uh, be mindful of the fact that not everybody who appears in my office with a new pregnancy is there to seek my prenatal care. So we do talk about whether this is a happy surprise for them or whether this is a planned event. And there there is so much impact about how they enter pregnancy, what they are thinking about when they enter pregnancy as to how they plan for the future of that pregnancy and beyond. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like 
This is an interesting question because there can be so many different emotions and it can be ever-changing during pregnancy. But then my next question is specifically about post-pregnancy, postpartum, right? So like there are kind of postpartum disorders, right? And I would love for you to kind of define the difference between a really common one, which is like baby blues, like most commonly known as, and then there's like PPD, postpartum depression. So I would love to know how common are these postpartum disorders and can you walk us through the differences between them? Yeah, quote unquote baby blues is a very common occurrence. I would say probably three quarters of uh, people that have given birth will um, have some type of decrease in the high, let's say, because the anticipation, the planning, the delivery, and the immediate postpartum period somehow comes with a rush of emotions and high hormone levels and and, uh, a lot of adrenaline. And then after the delivery of the baby and the delivery of the placenta and this sort of establishment of a new reality, there's always a decrease in those high hormones of birth that are somehow related to getting used to a new reality. So baby blues are kind of this temporary feeling of like, hmm, was I really ready for this? Am I up to the task? I am exhausted all the time. Oh, does that baby want to eat again? And the guilt of feeling like maybe I'm not a good mom, etc. But if it's temporary, and they're just the normal feelings that everybody seems to have after the birth, then we we kind of term it baby blues. And as an obstetrician who does deliveries, it's up to us to kind of gauge, well, look at the type of delivery this person had. Look at the mental health issues they might have had prior. Look at the difficulty of the pregnancy that they had. Look at the support that they have around them. If we're pretty convinced that what's happening postpartum is more likely to be just baby blues and new adjustment, we might not recommend we need to see you right away after the delivery to assess your mental health situation. But if we look at the overall um, combination of what has happened during pregnancy, did she have some difficulty during her pregnancy, some diagnosed conditions, diabetes, hypertension, was the delivery a little bit difficult? Did the baby end up needing special care or in the NICU? And of course, now with COVID, which we're going to talk about later, are the support systems in place for after the delivery, which right now, very often they're not. I look at all that when I do a delivery and think, hmm, this might be someone that I might need to assess much sooner after delivery and have them come back to my office within probably two weeks to assess not only how they're doing from after having a baby and recovering physically, but what is going on with their mental health. So once you get into the idea of this may actually be something more than just postpartum baby blues, then it's kind of a different category. And I'm going to give you a couple of um, statistics. I do a lecture at a medical school and at some conferences about this very subject. So um, Just the scope and definition a little bit, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, 11 to 20% of women in the postpartum period will have some type of depression. That's a lot of women. That is a lot more than I anticipated. And this was pre-COVID. So I'm Mm. going to give you some statistics on some studies that have been done within the COVID. Oh, you have that information. (laughs) Yes. Well, they've been ongoing. And and of course, I mean, as people would expect, it's going to be higher than this. Mm -hmm. But when you look at postpartum period, even by definition, we used to think, oh, someone had a baby, 
delivered six weeks later, come back and see me. If you're doing fine, CEO will come back when you need a pap smear. Mm -hmm. Totally different in the last year or two where we, first of all, the, the definition of postpartum period, believe it or not, includes everything up to 12 months after the delivery. So if you diagnose somebody with depression three months, eight months, seven months after the delivery, that is still considered peripartum or postpartum depression, although six months later you may term it late postpartum depression or something like that. So the estimates of the number of women with postpartum depression, of course, vary by age, ethnicity, race, and state, and are very impacted by uh, the things I mentioned before, what type of delivery did they have, what type of medical problems did they have, and what type of support system they have around them. And believe it or not, 60% of women with a postpartum depression uh, diagnosis, uh, sorry, with postpartum depressive symptoms never receive that clinical diagnosis. They just have the symptoms but never really sought the care or never were brought back to uh, establish that diagnosis by some type of uh, statistical means that we have to, to uh, assess that. Mm -hmm. And uh Definitely, there's a need for universal screening and treatment, which, as I said, in the past few years has has skyrocketed in importance as to when should we screen, how should we screen, who needs screening, and what should we do about it. Yeah. So I'm, then I'm going to go into uh, what do we, what kind of symptoms do women have when yes. uh, we believe they might have They're postpartum depression? Yeah, PPD. Why, exactly. And why is it so often undiagnosed in the postpartum period? Well, part of the definition comes from things like changes in sleep and appetite. And we, the woman or the partner or even the healthcare provider might just feel that these are attributable to normal pregnancy or postpartum changes. Yes, everyone is tired because they have a baby to take care of. Right. Yes, everybody has changes in appetite or libido in interest in doing things that they normally would do because you're fatigued. You're so fatigued that sometimes you can't even believe how tired you are. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes healthcare providers don't recognize the symptoms. Sometimes they don't have the, um, the idea of what it is that should be alarming to them with when women are exhibiting these symptoms or just describing what may or may not be normal postpartum symptoms. Um, the providers really have to ask. You know, we have screening tools. There are recommendations about when should we use these screening tools. Maybe providers are not familiar with them. You know, our society, our uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, has absolutely recommended that women be screened not just after they deliver, but even during the pregnancy so that we can kind of have an idea of what the risk is for future problems with depression as well. So we need to screen. And also, um, Sometimes providers don't have the referral base. They don't know, once I diagnose this in someone, what's the next step? I need, I need a series of checklists or I need a series of resources that I can then easily send somebody to. And in normal times, mental health is stretched thin. You know how long it takes for, in normal times, for not COVID times, for somebody to, to get an appointment with a mental health professional to be screened? So if health providers are kind of unaware of where to send people, they're not going to offer those resources, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And quickly, before we get into COVID stuff, I would love to talk to you really quickly about that movie we saw, Tully. 
which had, you know, I think it was, what is it, postpartum psychosis? That's postpartum psychosis. We had seen this movie a couple of years ago. You and I actually went someplace for a weekend, a girls weekend. It was so fun. Yeah, I think it was in Pacific Grove. Yeah. <laughs> and we saw a movie theater there that said there was a movie about um, a recently delivered uh, pre- a person who ended up with some kind of, I don't remember whether the trailer or something actually said it was something about mental health, but it, it was, was something that vague, happened. But it was kind of like, you know, Charlize Theron's the star and she, you know, the movie's Tully and she, you know, in the trailer is just very overworked, overwhelmed. You know, she's, she just had a baby. She has other kids. Her husband comes home and he's like, oh, pizza again for dinner. And she's like, her eyes are like sunken in and they're like, you know, purple and she's exhausted. She's been like, you know, pumping all day and breastfeeding. And that was kind of like the premise of the movie. Yeah, I can give you a few statistics on that. That is a much less common entity than postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. Postpartum psychosis is actually the most severe form of postpartum psychiatric illness. It's kind of rare, occurring maybe one to two per thousand women after childbirth. And the women that are at highest risk are those with a personal history of a previous episode of postpartum psychosis, like in a prior pregnancy, and a history of bipolar disorder actually also precipitates this this uh, postpartum psychosis. Mm-hmm. It actually usually has a dramatic onset emerging as early as 48 to 72 hours after a delivery. And they do believe that it is something to do with the dramatic change in hormones in an already kind of unstable person. Mm-hmm. And it resembles a rapidly evolving manic episode with restlessness, insomnia, irritability, um, rapidly shifting moods, and very disorganized behavior. Um, and sometimes the most extreme part of it, which we saw in the movie, is that the mom has Spoiler delusional. Alert. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if anyone's going to go and, re- and get it's that really movie good, or stream it or yes, whatever. It's really good, but Spoiler alert. Go ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. But the, the, the mom absolutely had delusional beliefs related to both herself and the infant. Like women have been known to believe something is defective about the baby. Um, they, they may have hallucinations, uh, which may instruct her to harm herself or the baby to cure her from what is ailing her. Mm-hmm. And the risks of infanticide and suicide are the highest among women who have untreated postpartum psychosis. So that is a real entity that that um, practitioners absolutely have to be aware of. And I have to say, in my 20 plus years, I've probably seen it twice. Oh, really? But when you see it, yeah, when you, aside from the movie, right. <laughs> when you see it, you absolutely have to act right away. Yeah, it's, it is really scary. And they did depict it in a way that was like, wow, like, I really want to learn more about this. But something that was interesting about it was that, do you remember, because you and I were talking about this, how, like, they were kind of marketing it as, like, oh, this is postpartum depression. But it's like, actually, right. that's not what it is. And it kind of sparked a controversy. And I, I just thought it was really interesting because that is kind of, like, the writer's responsibility to be very clear with what kind of condition that is. There are many people probably who watch that movie who are like, oh shit, like that's what postpartum depression is. And it's like, actually, no, like that's not postpartum depression. It's not that severe. It's far less common. And I just, I just thought it was, it was a great movie, but I think that it kind of did an injustice there. So before we get specifically into COVID then, Mm -hmm. let me just give you 
what the major risk factors for postpartum depression would be. Mm -hmm. And then also I want to talk to you a, a little bit about what the real presenting signs and symptoms are. So just in case anyone who is listening to this can think about, you know, uh, the possibility, hey, that might be me or that might be someone I know and it could raise a red flag. So the major risk factors of having postpartum depression are, of course, number one, coming into your pregnancy or during your pregnancy already having a diagnosis of depression. So um, if you are either on medication or have a diagnosis, have sought therapy or are newly diagnosed with depression during pregnancy, the risk that you'll also have postpartum depression also goes uh, is greatly elevated. Mm -hmm. Also, anxiety during pregnancy that seems out a little bit um, higher than what would normally be seen in just, let's say, regular getting ready for your baby. Like there's there's a certain amount of anxiety. I often will tell my patients that if there's not a little bit of anxiety during, especially a first pregnancy, then like how I'm are you going to take care of a baby? You're not doing it right because there t there's a little low level of anxiety um, that you need to get everything ready to to think about what you need to think about living with a new baby it, it it makes you anxious but it shouldn't make you anxious to the point where you cannot function so anxiety during pregnancy is another risk factor also encountering stressful life events now of course everyone in the world is under a stressful life event but that is a major risk factor if you encounter stressful life events during pregnancy or in early postpartum. And aside from COVID, of course, those would be things like death in the family, divorce, um, unexpected illnesses, major accidents, things like that that could happen during or right after pregnancy immediately shoots you to the, the high risk uh, factor for having postpartum depression. As I mentioned before, if you deliver preterm or end up with a baby that needs NICU care, immediately also that's a very stressful for new parents and that leads uh, to a high risk for postpartum depression. And then some other things like low levels of social support, uh, previously hit, uh, having a history of other mental health issues, and of course, once you deliver, problems with breastfeeding. Mm. You know, especially again, I'm going to mention with first babies. Many, many women have this idealized version of what their pregnancy, their delivery, and their postpartum period should be like. And I can tell you from the moment that you're pregnant, both I can tell you personally and professionally, you're not in control of it. And the more people feel like they want to try to be in control of it or have the control of everything during pregnancy and the outcome, the more disappointed they're going to be when it doesn't go that way. So I try with all my patients, you know, I. The good thing about being a solo practitioner, among the many bad things about drains on your time and your finances and things like that, the good thing is that when I take care of someone in pregnancy, I know them for nine months. Mm -hmm. And I do try to set up realistic expectations for them about their pregnancy, their delivery, and the postpartum period as much as possible because it's that disappointment that sets them up for to being anxious and depressed. So I'm just going to go over a little list of presenting symptoms and signs. So what do what do what does a postpartum depressed person feel or look like? So mm -hmm. I'm just going to kind of read through a little checklist because most of them are pretty obvious, but what makes the difference between these and just what we mentioned before baby blues is that these presenting signs and symptoms in baby blues don't keep you from being able to do what you need to do. When you're depressed, you can't 
do what you need to do with your baby or for yourself or in a postpartum period of time. So feeling sad, hopeless, empty, overwhelmed, which of course, as we said, everyone feels a bit overwhelmed, but not everyone cannot manage to do their daily activities of living because they're so overwhelmed. But if they are, that's a presenting symptom of depression. Crying more often than usual and sometimes for no apparent reason, worrying all the time, feeling moody, irritable, restless, oversleeping or being unable to sleep. As we always tell new parents, when the baby sleeps, you need to sleep because when the baby's up, you need to be up and vigilant full time. And then we have many moms who the baby's sleeping and they, they are anxious or they're too depressed and they cannot shut it down and go about you know what we recommend, which is resting to fuel their own body. So then they get even more overly tired. Mm -hmm. Trouble concentrating making and making decisions, even as far as things like anger or rage. I do have some patients who come into me and go, I, I don't understand. I never had these fights with my partner before. And for some reason, I'm always enraged at everything that they do. And that's a, a red flag. And of course, suffering for from physical aches and pains, headaches, muscle pains, stomach problems, which seem way beyond things that are just related to the delivery. Mm -hmm. um, also, <laughs> kind of hard to tell in these times, but avoiding friends and family, not for COVID reasons, but for reasons that you just don't want to deal with them. Having trouble bonding with their infant or forming an emotional bond, little or no energy, highly doubting your ability to care for the infant, and of course the ultimate, which would be thinking about harming themselves. Mm -hmm. So these are this is a long list, and many new parents, in some way or the other, in small ways, feel many of the things on the list. But they're if they're overwhelming and they do not allow them to do their activities of normal living, of daily living, if they interfere, then you're heading into this category of diagnosis of postpartum depression. Yeah. And well, let's get into the um, kind of like resources and like treatment for these maybe like towards the end. But what I was going to say is like, I am not a parent. And because of COVID, I have been feeling many of those things <laughs> along with everyone else I know. Like, it's impossible to feel completely happy, completely normal right now. Like this has been the like worst year yeah. for so many people. And so let's talk about COVID. Let's really get into it. I know people are mostly kind of probably tired of COVID stuff, but I think yeah. that it's really helpful to talk about pregnancy with a COVID lens because it's so particular. It's such a different experience than any like other people are experiencing right now, like everyone's home. But for people who are pregnant, there really is this like whole next level of like challenges. So let's talk about, you know, getting pregnant during COVID. And, you know, I know that you have some strong opinions or kind of in the past, we've talked about like, why folks shouldn't be having babies right now, like if they can help it. But I want to know, like, what's your what is that opinion? Like, where, where does that come from? Why? And then, like, off the back of that, I want to know if there are any benefits, potentially, to having a baby right now, if at all. Okay. Um, as you know, because you mentioned it, at the beginning of this crisis, I was definitely in the camp of no one should be trying to have a baby during COVID. And that went so far as 
you know, a lot of um, places, infertility places, shut down their efforts to do things like IVF and, you know, inseminations and assistive reproductive technology because the main reason was it was a huge unknown. No one knew how to treat it. No one knew how bad it was going to get. No one knew what the effect on pregnant women was. No one knew whether pregnant women could pass it to their babies if they got it. And because of all that, I was very much of the strong opinion, please don't be getting pregnant now when in nine months, we don't know what the situation in our delivery rooms in our hospitals is gonna be. And to tell you the truth, I never really anticipated that now, 10, 11 months later, it's just as bad mm -hmm. as it was before, but there's a huge difference. Now, we do have ex some experience with what happens to women who are pregnant who get COVID. They're, and it's not like we're studying them. It's not like we gave people COVID and were pregnant and then decided to see what would happen. But obviously, many of the people who have gotten COVID or who were infected or have gotten sick or even asymptomatic carriers have been pregnant mm -hmm. and just by sheer numbers were, the amount of people who right. just happen to be pregnant right. during and, you know while they got right. COVID right and there were there have been several different um uh statements that have come out from organizations whereas at first people said it doesn't look like uh, women can transmit COVID to their unborn baby and then it looked like, well, maybe they can, because there were some studies that came out of Japan and other places that said, it looks like these, some of these babies are positive. And then the, initially there were studies that said, pregnant women are no more sick than non-pregnant women if they get COVID. And then that was also negated where they said, pregnant women get COVID and they're hospitalized, they're more likely to be put on a vent and more likely to end up with severe symptoms and some of them not even surviving. And we, at the beginning, we didn't know what to do in the delivery room. In the very beginning of this crisis, you know, women would show up in labor. And of course, until we were able to test them, which don't forget, we did not have enough tests at the beginning, which we still don't have now, but at least we have more mm -hmm. at the beginning. Um, someone would show up in labor and everyone would assume whether they had a cough, cold, fever or nothing, we had to assume that they were a person under investigation. So the entire delivery room staff had to, you know, gown up in the PPE and, and uh, you know, certain rooms could only be utilized. There's, there certainly weren't enough rooms that could be, have negative pressure in them. And then if there was a COVID patient in a particular room, it had to be what we call terminally cleaned. So there was so much unknown and so much controversial information coming out I certainly said to people, if you aren't already pregnant, this is probably the time where you should be taking a break in your trying to get pregnant because wait until more time has passed, wait until we have better treatment, wait closer to the time where we might have a vaccine. So now here we are almost a year later and you have to take into account many other things that, that go into people's mindset when they're thinking about having a baby. What about people who had infertility already? What about people who are already 38, 39 years old? Do they, are, are we going to tell them, wait time. another year? <laughs> exactly. We, you know, 
opinions have a little bit changed, especially as we've gotten better at taking care of it in the hospital. Of course, hospitals at this moment, we are right now in January of 2021, the hospital where I work is overrun with COVID patients. So are all the hospitals in California. There's a stay at home order here. So I think the most pressing issue when I'm now taking care of pregnant patients is what's happening in the hospital? Will my partner be able to come in with me? What's going to happen if I need a C-section? Do you have available uh, space and and uh, personnel and rooms for me to take care of me in case I'm the person who has COVID? Or what about if the person who was there right before me had COVID? Is that going to put me at risk? These are the questions that I get. So, you know, taking care of pregnant pe- people now is is way more complicated in all the discussions that we have to have about now. Now, at least we have a method like we about testing people when they go in, about planning for delivery, about who can be there, about masks, about gowns. We, we do have enough protective equipment and putting all that together. Of course, now I give all the risk and benefit information to people who are not yet pregnant and they really have to make that decision themselves about whether this is something that they want to endure. I mean, do we know if a pregnant woman who gets COVID is going to have some kind of abnormality in the baby or increased chance of miscarriage, et cetera? You know, I don't know that by by statistics or by studies, but anecdotally, I speak to many, many other OBGYN physicians, and they've definitely seen a trend in more miscarriages, more people coming in ill, more uh, mental health issues, many, many more problems uh, associated with COVID and being pregnant that if I had to give someone advice about trying at the moment, I would say Put a pause you on have it. to weigh all, yeah, 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 you have to weigh all your risks and benefits, but we still really cannot say that it's something I would encourage people to do. Totally. And at the same time, of being like, you know, what you said before of, oh, who could have imagined this would last for 11 months? Like, if this thing lasts another year, two years, like, who knows? It's lasted almost a year. It's very possible it could be just like this, depending on the amount of people who get vaccines within the next six months. Like, we know that, you know, in, in like, impoverished areas of the country, they're not going to have access to the vaccine. Like, there's just going to be, it's going to be all of the things that are already an issue in this country, whether that be racism, classism, sexism, like, you know, people in rural areas not having enough resources, it won't, it will only be exacerbated by this pandemic. And so oh, magnified for sure, totally. And so certain people will, like, start to have babies again, but it still won't be safe for other people, other populations to have not have babies, you know, so I, I just think that like, while it makes a lot of sense that like, since there are so many unknowns and since like it seems really like not the best time people can't put a pause on their lives forever or like even for another year or two depending on their situation but what are what about like benefits what benefits could you see well one thing that i definitely tell my patients who have been delivering during this pandemic and it wasn't something that i would have wanted for them but just put it this way. After I have delivered a baby, it would not be unusual to go see the patient on the postpartum floor and have 10, 12 people in the room sometimes as per, you know, 
both sets of grandparents and aunts and friends and everybody. And I love the support that that provides for people, but it is also exhausting. And, you know, uh, people that just had a baby have to make all these decisions about how do they satisfy everyone who wants a piece of them and a piece of the baby when she just went through this this ordeal and, you know, maybe can't even sit up in bed, maybe she had a C-section, et cetera. So I have to say one benefit that I have seen is in that there's none of this extraneous, like, let me come and see the baby and let me come and visit you. It's more personal. It's a time, right. It's a time where couples or, you know, whoever has had the baby has that one support person with them. And this is their time to really bond with the baby and not have to make excuses for anybody about why they don't want to come over because the house is dirty or they can't do the laundry or something like that. That's one thing. But on the same token, one of the things that has added much more to postpartum depression during COVID, which I do want to go over a little bit of the statistics of a, a recent study, mm-hmm. is a lot of the support is missing. Right. There's not, it's not the same thing to be on Zoom with your relatives when you just had a new baby because what you really need is somebody to come over and hold Clean the baby the while you take a nap. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm just going to go just uh, quickly into there, uh, just that came out in December. A uh, study came out from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, more than 1,100 pregnant and postpartum women. And they, and they took the statistics right from the middle of the pandemic. So it went from May to August. And you know how we said before that maybe between 11 and 20% of women normally mm-hmm. um, are uh, diagnosed or have postpartum depression? This study found that 36%, more than one in three women, had significant levels of depression. And they attributed it to, because they they had surveys that all these women filled out, that when a new mother is not able to participate in the usual rituals around birth and welcoming a new family member, just think, no one's having a baby shower. Nobody's having, you know, uh, a big party when you have the baby. Uh, Usually, they are more than five times as likely to experience significant mental health symptoms because they feel that sense of grief loss and disappointment because of the pandemic and because the same people who I'm saying it's kind of good, maybe not all these people can visit you, the same people who would have provided you support in the Mm -hmm. early postpartum period or even late postpartum period just can't be there for you. Yeah. So that's like, that's a huge statistic. So, you know, again, uh, the, the biggest thing now that we're looking at, of course, is vaccines. You know, that the COVID vaccines are out there. They're rolling out kind of slowly in some areas. And um, I get the question all the time from pregnant women, if I am given an opportunity to get the vaccine, what should I do? And the advice from ACOG, from American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, is that if a pregnant woman meets the criteria for having gotten a vaccine anyway, like she's in healthcare or she has exposure, then she likely should get it, mostly because, not because there's been robust studies of pregnant women who have gotten the vaccine, but as time goes on, as we said before, inadvertently, people who didn't know they were pregnant are going to get the vaccine, Mm -hmm. and there will be data on that. And then, as these um, associations come out and say, because of the type of vaccine, it's not a live virus, it's an RNA vaccine, 
likely it will be fine for pregnant women. So as more pregnant women who are exposed decide to weigh the risk and benefit of getting COVID versus the unlikelihood that the vaccine will be damaging and more women who are pregnant get the vaccine, the statistics will eventually be there. Do we have them right now? No, we don't. But I mean, I have a, a patient who, who works in a very high risk situation, works in a, in a prison. I have to tell her that if she's in a situation that she's at high risk in that kind of patient population, you know, she should get if it. you understand, you, you, you know, you should probably get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We have one last question. Time always flies when you're chatting with your mom. Um, <laughs> we have one, one last question, but before I say that, the one other benefit that I've like heard about or like feel is true is that since everyone is working from home, if you do have a baby and your partner who potentially, you know, could be a man who, like, a cis man who doesn't have paternity leave, like, then you both potentially can be caring for the baby more so at home now more than ever. Because, and I think that there's more opportunity for you know, maybe, I don't know if this is true, but like more equal partnership when it comes to taking care of the baby. If both of you are home, if like the mom, you know, is on maternity leave and typically, you know, we're talking about a hetero relationship, but like, and the dad wouldn't have necessarily gotten those benefits, but now can see like how important it is for both parents in that kind of situation to be participating in taking care of the baby And so I think parents, what I've heard at least, is that moms are happy about all of the home time they're able to get with their babies at this moment. I can speak to that specifically in that normally when I see someone come back for a postpartum visit, which by the way, as I said before, we used to see them at six weeks. Now, if they're at risk, I see them at two weeks. And if they just had a normal delivery and I, I want to see them for a postpartum visit, I see them at four weeks. And it's not unusual to see postpartum people multiple times in the first few months to screen them, to see how they're doing, to offer resources. So that's an important point. But I can definitely talk about um the impact of having both people home because when I used to see people at that postpartum, whether it was a four or six week visit, uh, many times they would come in super anxious because they're just about to lose their home support. Like, because, you know, we have FMLA here Mm -hmm. where uh, dads, let's say had a couple of weeks off and it normally would be maybe three or four weeks or something like that. And then just at the point they come back to tell me, Oh, we're just kind of getting the hang of it but I'm petrified because he's going back to work tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And now that doesn't seem to be an issue because he's still there or you know, right. the partner's still there or actually whoever was their support person is probably more still there. So, you know, that is, I guess, one benefit of many people working from home and society at large realizing that many people can work from home and sometimes there's not even a reason to go back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Okay. So did you want to talk a little bit about treatment and also resources? Exactly. Yeah. That's the last question. So like back to postpartum depression and kind of making sure that people who have symptoms of PPD or experiencing PPD or other kind of postpartum um, disorders, what resources exist for, for folks who are experiencing this, who need support, especially during COVID when, you know, meeting with people in person may not really be possible. Um, Absolutely. 
the uh, facility or the care provider or the nurse practitioner or the midwife or whoever was involved with the pregnancy care and the delivery should have resources at their fingertips to uh, to um, refer patients if they realize that someone needs that type of referral. And the way that the flag kind of goes up is that we do have these postpartum depression scales. Uh, one is called the Edinburgh scale, one is PHQ-9, but that every postpartum woman, sh woman should be filling out at their postpartum visit. So if that raises a flag, the practitioners should have an automatic referral process of where people can go. Now again, the impact of COVID, many of these may be online resources or online therapy, but just in general, one that I love, something called PSI International, and the, um, the website is postpartumdepression.org. That has wonderful resources. It has an 800 number that will connect you with somebody right away. It will give you local resources. It will give you online tools to fill out. Many, many things for uh, a person who is just seeking out their own resources. And I give this tool to my patients all the time. And they have pamphlets that they send me and I give out to the patients so that they can have their own resources even if they haven't yet come back to me for a postpartum visit. So that's a great one. Also, they can get online with either ACOG, A-C-O-G. There is a patient portal with all kinds of patient education pamphlets and online information. Also, the March of Dimes, which is marchofdimes.org slash pregnancy slash postpartum depression. And they have lots of resources there as well. So those are a couple of different resources that people can look up online. And then I did want to mention treatment and I think it's very important to know why postpartum depression should be treated. And the most important reason is that if it is untreated, it is has been shown statistically that the condition will last much longer and be much more severe without some kind of proper treatment. And there are also a lot of barriers to treatment because there's a lot of stigma for women that I definitely hear women all the time coming in and say, they give me all the reasons why they need treatment. They, I, I, they fill out the postpartum depression scale and they meet criteria and they tell me all of their signs and symptoms and we get to the next step, which is, this sounds like a case for some medication. And they go, oh no, I don't wanna be on any medication. Mostly because they, they associate that somehow with, I'm a bad mom, mm. I'll get addicted, it's a stigma, people will think less of me. Uh, It'll interfere with my breastfeeding. They're, my partner doesn't want me to do it. So that's a whole bucket full of reasons why people don't want to be treated. So I think there have to be a lot of different resources that you can offer to women. And if it doesn't seem that medication is going to be acceptable to them, you can't really say, well, it's that or nothing. There are psychotherapeutics. There are supplements. There are cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, talk therapy, many different things that have been explored as treatments for postpartum depression. And I'm not saying that all of them are the perfect solution, mm -hmm. but I think practitioners, healthcare providers really have to be aware of the combination of things that exist out there to treat. And early initiation of treatment results in a much better prognosis. Also, there are support groups. I know right here where I live, there's um, something called the, the Napa Mom Squad, which yeah. right now they're doing everything online, but it's a local group of women who 
have gone through this themselves. And now they are mentors or uh, peers to help women. And I, I give this information out to every pregnant woman because there's really not one particular time where you can say, aha, I'm noticing at this moment you are transitioning into someone who might need a support group. At this time, who doesn't need a support group? And, and they, I need them to know that it's there if they should want to take advantage of that. So if people end up going the route of pharmacologic therapies, most OBs should be comfortable prescribing for them. If they don't, then of course they should involve a psychiatrist or someone else who can prescribe medications. And antidepressants, of course, are the first line of treatment and very often result in a symptom diminishment in several weeks. And we have to tell people that, that the plan is for them to be on them at least several months for the long term so that they can get enough levels in their system so that it can affect their brain, affect their neurotransmitters, and uh, bring them out of this postpartum depression as much as possible. And that about does it. Um, thank you so much. So much. I know so <laughs> much to say. This was a really, really great episode. So thank you so much for being on and I'm sure our listeners are really appreciating all the nuance and kind of all of the information that you gave. So I love you to the moon and back. And thank you so much for being on five times party. Thank you, sweetie. Love you. Love you. Ever wish you had an exact replica of your gorgeous parts? Well, now you can make one yourself. Thanks to clone Willie. Clona Willy and Clona Pussy are DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva at home into a high quality sex toy or memento. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. Want to win a year's worth of free lube? Yeah, I'll bet you do. All you have to do is enter the secret code word into the UberLube Google form on our Instagram link tree, and bam, you're entered to win that sweet, sweet year's worth of lube. I'll bet you want to know what that code word is right about now, don't you? Okay, fine, I'll tell you, but don't tell anyone. The secret code word is slippery. Enter that word into the Google form on our Instagram link tree, and you'll be entered to win. Good luck! Sex Ed with DB is supported by Pandia Health the only doctor-led birth control delivery company. Here are some fun facts about Pandia Health. Most birth control is free with insurance or for $15 per pack without. Your birth control comes with free delivery and free goodies, and you can get an online doctor visit if you need it, which is perfect during COVID-19. Go to pandiahealth.com, that's P-A-N-D-I-A health.com, and use code SEXEDFREE to get a free telemedicine appointment for the first 50 people who sign up. Offer only valid in Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, and Wyoming. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Katherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time. <laughs>